Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Just having fun talking about where where might Noah's Ark be found, and so as we were looking at that study, you remember it mentioned in chapter eight, verse four, that it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and so we had a little pushpin there where Mount Ararat is, and then we also looked at other locations where people suggest, no, 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 it's actually over here, no, no, it's over there, and so we ended up with you know pushpins here and there over the map of the Middle East, all of them in the same general area, but actually spanning several countries. You remember from last week's study as well that there have been lots of sightings, lots of reported sightings of Noah's Ark, most of them having to do with Mount Ararat. Noah's Ark, does it matter if it's found or not? Does it really matter? I mean, I guess it depends on where you're coming from and what your perspective is. If you are already firm that this is God's word and it's trustworthy, then whether or not Noah's Ark gets found doesn't make a whole lot of difference in your faith. If you're already a believer and you're following Christ, whether there's an ark found or not in your lifetime, it doesn't really matter if Noah's Ark is found. For some people, though, it could make a difference. Maybe there's somebody that's on the fence, and all of a sudden the discovery of Noah's Ark is enough for them to dive into God's Word for the first time, and maybe they do come to know Jesus as their Savior as a result of the great find of Noah's Ark. There would be people, though, that even with the discovery of Noah's Ark, it wouldn't make any difference. They would persist in unbelief. You know what? Even if somebody was to rise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. There are people that are so staunchly in their unbelief that being confronted with very clear evidence won't change their mind. So would the discovery of Noah's Ark make a difference? For some people it might, for others it wouldn't. Uh, one of the interesting things or one of the neat things about Noah's Ark is if it is discovered, if it is found, um, that's going to completely, eventually and completely annihilate the whole idea of evolution. So that was last week. Going into this week then, going to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, verse 5. Somebody mind reading that one? The waters continued to recede. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Excellent. What month is mentioned? The tenth month. Okay, and what's significant about the tenth month according to this verse? The tops of the mountains became visible. The tops of the mountains became visible. Okay, so we have the tops of the mountains becoming visible here in the tenth. But when did the ark come to rest? Check verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. Seventh month. The ark came to rest in the seventh month. But here we have the very next verse saying it's the 10th month, right? Three months later, that the tops of the mountains are seen. How do we reconcile that? It sounds like there could be a problem with that. Or is there? How do we reconcile the ark coming to rest three months before the tops of the mountains are seen? The depth of the boat. There we go, the depth of the boat. So you can actually have the boat run aground before the tops of the mountains can be seen. And I can tell you, I, you don't know this, a lot of you don't know this about me. I actually used to live on a boat, and it was perpetually in the mud. We always knew that there was a bottom, even no matter where the water was. So, I mean, because the, the boat doesn't just float right on the very tip of the surface, right? It, it sinks down a little bit. All right, so yeah, it's kind of fun to contemplate how Noah's Ark could actually run aground on something you can't even see, because that's what held up our houseboat, <laughs> was the ground or the mud oh, underneath. Man. 
And, uh, yeah, so. All right, moving on from there. Verse 6, somebody might read verse 6. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Excellent. So Noah opens the window of the ark. If you remember in chapter 6, verse 16, in the instructions or the plans that God had given to Noah, chapter 6, verse 16, he told Noah to include in the plans to make a window. It says, you shall make a window for the ark. And you shall finish it to a cubit. We discovered that's about 18 inches. A cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. So here, he's not opening the door of the ark at this point in verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. He's opening the window. So he's opening the window of the ark. We don't know how big the window was, though. And if you remember from our study from chapter 6, verse 16, the word that was used there for window actually has to do with an opening above you, okay, as opposed to an opening on the side of you. So this is some sort of window that was an opening above you. And so here we have a situation where it sounds like the opening of the window is happening, and it's probably that same window that's opening above. Somebody mind reading verse 7? And sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Excellent. Sent out a raven. So this raven, he sends out. It doesn't tell us in this verse why he sent out a raven. We do get a clue later on in verse 8. In verse 8, he ends up sending out a dove. And it says in that verse, the reason he sent out the dove, it says, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So whether or not that's the same reason he sent out the raven before he sent out the dove, we don't know for sure. We would have to be reading kind of between the lines or borrowing information from the next verse. That might be the case, might not. So he sends out the raven, and the raven doesn't come back. Hmm, that's kind of strange. A couple of commentators, though, that, that I ended up reading pointed out a few interesting things about ravens. Ravens. Clean or unclean? Anybody know? Unclean. Unclean. <laughs> unclean animal. Esther's like, I got this one. <laughs> unclean animal. Okay, so this animal is not fit for food and not fit for sacrifice. All right. So it says here in rabbinic tradition, the raven was considered expendable. <laughs> Since it was neither good for food nor sacrifice, its departure from the ark signified that the impurities of the past had been removed, and the creation of the new world had a fresh start. All right. Why would the raven not come back? Anybody have an idea? What does a raven eat? Dead things. Yeah. A raven is it, it, it's fine with carrion. <laughs> so where is it going to find food? All over. All over the place, right? The raven's like, hey, holiday. I get all you can eat buffet out here. Right, so yeah, the raven's out there and has plenty to eat from. No reason to go back to the ark. Probably tired of whatever food he had on the ark. You know, he's content to stay outside. So here we have the unclean bird, the unclean animal, content to stay among the dead, content to stay out there in the filth and the unclean world. All right. Next verse. What kind of animal mentioned there? What kind of bird? Verse eight. Uh, a dove. dove. Somebody might reading that verse. He also released a dove to find out how well the water had drained from the ground surface. Excellent. So now he's sending out a dove, and now we find out the reason that he's sending out this bird. For the dove in particular, we find it, specifically it's mentioned, to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. So reading that information about the dove, like I said, we can kind of get an idea of why did he send that raven out. Perhaps it was for a similar reason. So the raven stayed out. They could probably read between the lines and go, yeah, there's still dead stuff out there. <laughs> All right? Apparently the raven's fine out there. eating, got plenty of things to eat. It doesn't need to actually come back. Let's stay in the ark a little longer. All right? So he sends out the dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. Javier. Question, I'm sorry. Yes. And here it says he also sent out from himself. 
Yep. From himself. And the interesting thing is, kind of the same language like you're noticing right there, in the very next verse, he's going to receive it to himself. Too. Kind of neat, huh? And we're going to find out, too, a little bit more. A lot of people would say, if you look at the story of the ark, what you're looking at is a picture of Christ. All right? It's a picture of Christ where you're protected inside. If you stay inside, you're protected on the inside. You're covered over. You're atoned for. And in the midst of the swirling chaos and unclean you know, world of death, you have life in Christ. And this dove goes out the first time. It doesn't find a place to be able to let down its foot and ends up coming back, which we'll find in verse 9. Good, good observation, Javier. Well done. Think of a dove. What are some things that we find later on that a dove symbolizes in our readings through the Bible? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Peace. Right. And peace. And it was an acceptable sacrifice. It was actually a, one of the required sacrifices that would be found in the rites of purification. You find that in Leviticus 12, number 6, and Luke chapter 24 shows it as well. Or Luke chapter 2, 24. It's got a lot of rich symbolism as you read through your Bible, the dove. One other thing I want to mention about a dove. A dove is different from a raven in three primary regards, or three main regards. For one is, a dove is lim more limited than a raven in its ability to fly long distances. Okay, that's one. Another one is that a dove frequents lower elevations. All right, and a dove, number three, requires plants for food. It's not an eater of dead carcasses. All right, so those, for those reasons, the dove coming back, Noah's able to read into that, hey, it doesn't look like there's any plants out there yet, and it doesn't look like there's any lower elevations yet, <laughs> and it doesn't look like that's anything close, you know, because it can't fly as far. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of giving a report of the close surroundings for Noah to be able to, to read between the lines and see what that would mean. How about verse 9? Somebody might reading verse 9. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. Here we also have, you find the word resting place there. The resting place is actually one word in the, in the Hebrew, one word there. Anybody recognize something similar or something familiar in that word for resting place? No. It's my Noah. <laughs> yeah. Noah, right there. And if you remember, Noah means rest. This is actually the second play on, on the, the name of Noah that we've seen so far in last week's study and this week's study. Last week's study, when it talked about the ark coming to rest... That was Nua. It was a play on Noah's name. Here we have the dove not finding rest, Manoah. And so it's kind of a play on, on Noah's name there. All right, so the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. She returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark himself. One of the commentaries that I read here, it says, in Matthew Henry's commentary, it says, And as Noah put forth his hand and took the dove and pulled her to him into the ark, so Christ will save and help and welcome those that flee to him for rest. So another commentator talking about the illustration of Christ in this story of Noah's ark being a, a bigger picture or typology of, of Christ. All right, next one, verse 10. Somebody mind reading verse 10. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. Excellent, thank you. So we have here the dove going out a second time. One of the things I want to point out about this verse as well is that we have a little time reference here. What is the time reference? Seven days. Seven days, exactly. We have a mention of seven days. And it's yet another seven days, right? Mm -hmm. The yet another suggests that perhaps the sending out of the raven and then the sending out of the dove, maybe there was a seven day period between those. 
and then the sending out of the dove, and the sending out of the dove the second time, perhaps a seven-day period among those. Some commentators would read this and suggest that perhaps Noah is observing Shabbat, that he's observing the Sabbath. It's not clearly taught, but it's something that you might be able to see a little bit of an inference there, all right, because of the seven-day period thing. All right? He waited yet another seven days, and again, he sent the dove out from the ark. <laughs> Does the dove stay away this time? The raven still seems to be happy out there, but the dove comes back. What happens in verse 11? When the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in its beak a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. Excellent. Thanks. So here we have the dove coming back with a freshly plucked olive leaf. Or some commentators would say the words could indicate a fresh bud of a leaf. Something new, like new life. All right. So it's not plucked off a branch that was floating in the water. That it suggests this is from new growth. All right. It's a plant. It's an olive tree that's taken root and started to grow. Okay. So it brings back a leaf from an olive tree. Now, knowing what we know about the dove, Noah's able to read into that a couple things. This is nearby, because the dove can't fly far away. So this is somewhere nearby. Doves frequent lower elevations, so perhaps this comes from a lower elevation, meaning the water is going down. And the other thing, doves require plants for food. Here's a bit of a plant. All right, so we've got a different result than we had in the previous verse than we had seven days before when the dove was sent out at that time. Some of the other things, too. What is olive? What could be significant about an olive tree or a leaf from an olive tree? Peace. Tell me about olive. It's a symbol of peace. There's a symbol of peace associated with the olive, with the olive tree or the olive leaf. Anything else? Food. For food, okay. So we've got, we've got the idea that there's, there's going to be food, that God's going to repopulate the earth with food, just as he did in the original creation, right? What else do we have? Let me put it this way. Olive leaves come from olive trees. Olive trees give olives. Olives can be made into olive oil. What is olive oil sometimes symbolic of in our Bible? Anointment. An anointing oil, right? So you have in this, in this bringing of the olive tree, you've got an anointing oil. You've got the oil that's used to fuel the menorah in the tabernacle, all right? And you also find olive oil is sometimes symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So you've had the dove, which is sometimes symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and you have olive oil that could be, you could see that in this. So it sounds like the Holy Spirit is involved in this in a play on words kind of way. Mm -hmm. All right? So that's kind of fun to see. Looking further then, by the way, if you remember when Jesus was baptized, what happened in the baptism that had to do with a dove? Landing on him. Yeah, that he was baptized and he came up out of the water, and as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit, he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. And so it's kind of neat, kind of neat seeing the fingerprints of God and the consistency that you see uh, throughout the scriptures. Verse 12, somebody might read in verse 12. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriel. Yep. So you have a situation here, another seven days. He sends out the dove again in this one. And this time the dove does not come back, suggesting that the dove has found all it needs outside and that there's now the potential of freedom and life outside the ark. Uh, but we're going to find out Noah ends up waiting still yet longer before actually saying, okay, everybody, run free. <laughs> All right. One of the things, too, about this, about the sending out of the raven and sending out of the dove, a lot of times you'll find people that will say, you know, this is very similar to the epic of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian flood myths and the Babylonian flood myths. 
and you find that they will draw a correlation between Noah's flood and these other ones. And we've talked about this before, how that usually would suggest that there's a grain of truth in what they might have. But if you trace the stories back, I'm, I'm proposing to you that this is the way that it really went down. Here's one thing, one similarity about the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. It says this, on the seventh day after Utnapishtim's boat landed on Mount Nisir, he did the following. I sent forth and set free a dove. The dove went forth but came back. Since no resting place for it was visible, she turned round. Then I sent forth and set free a swallow. The swallow went forth but came back. Since no resting place for it was visible, she turned round. Then I sent forth and set free a raven. The raven went forth and seeing that the waters had diminished, he eats, circles, caws, and turns not round. The reason I bring this up is because a lot of times if you watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or one of these channels and they're trying to, they're trying to give you every reason not to believe that God's word is inspired, all right? A lot of times they will point out, well, the Epic of Gilgamesh, it actually predates the story of Noah as, as far as they use on their dating system. The thing is, though, the Epic of Gilgamesh didn't have this bird stuff associated with it until after the biblical account. All right. So the bird stuff, and the earliest ones that they could find was added later. It says, this quote is from the 11th tablet of the Babylonian version of the epic, of which no copies earlier than 750 BC are known. The only other reference to birds is from the Babylonian priest Barosus, who wrote his account of the flood about 300 BC. None of the earlier editions mention birds. So then, the only surviving testimony to the most telling parallel between the Epic of Gilgamesh and the biblical story happens to be later than the biblical account. That's a mouthful to say what? Here's what it says. Don't believe what your TV channels are trying to tell you as far as which one came first and which one's more trustworthy and which ones are believable, and especially when they try to tell you in their conclusion that this is just one of many myths. All right? We found out, and you remember, as we get to the story of the Tower of Babel and all the different let people groups spread out across the earth, they're all going to take this story, they're all going to take the oral history with them, and it's going to be slightly different in all these different places. What does it mean? It means it really happened, they just have different parts of it right. All right? So that was a, lot, that was a long way around that one. All right. Verse 13. Somebody might read in verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year... The water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So here we have the word mentioned covering. Noah removed the covering of the ark. The only other place outside of the flood narrative where this word actually appears, this word is mixed, it shows up in the covering of the tabernacle as the children of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. They have a portable temple, okay? It's a tabernacle, and they're going place to place with the tabernacle, and the design of the tabernacle is such that there's a covering over it. It's a, a covering of animal skins, and that word that's used there is the same word that's used here. Pretty much no other place that it shows up. So that kind of makes an interesting correlation or interest, interesting connection between those. Also, you have another time reference here, the 601st year and the first month of the first day of the month. The 601st year is the age of Noah, in case you wonder what that is. All right, so Noah is 601 years old by this time. First day of the first month, we're not sure which calendar they're actually using, so we don't know for sure which date this is. There's speculations on one side and speculations on another. We'll talk about calendars more in a few minutes. But it's interesting, as I was mentioning, that covering being over the tabernacle and also over the ark. One of the commentators says, even as God was with Israel in the wilderness sojourn, he was with Noah in the midst of the watery voyage. So that was pretty cool, pretty fitting to be able to say that. Now, moving from verse 13 to verse 14, we've got a time elapse of two months. All right, so verse 14, somebody might read that. 
On the 27th of the next month, the earth was thoroughly dried, and God told Noah. Excellent. So here we have a situation where it's, it's roughly two months later. It's the 27th of the next month. So we've gone from the first of the first month to the 27th of the second month. So almost two full months that we've waited between verse 13 now to verse 14. Now what I want you to do is I want you to look back on chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, 11 gives us the date that the flood started. What's the date that it started? 600th year of Noah's life on the 17th day okay. of the second month. Mm. All right. So from start to finish, what are we looking at? A year and 10 days. Looks like a year and 10 days. But that's for us with our Western way of thinking and our Gregorian calendar. Mm -hmm. We think in how many days a year? 365. 365 days in a year, right? So 365 days in the Gregorian calendar. Did they use the Gregorian calendar? The Gregorian calendar is based on the sun. The, sun. the Hebrews, do they use a solar-based calendar? No. They don't. What do they use? Luna. They use a lunar-based calendar. A lunar-based calendar meaning what? If, if the Gregorian calendar is based on the sun, what does that mean? It means the amount of time it takes the earth to revolve around the sun one time. Completely all the way around 365 days. If you're based on a lunar calendar, what is that based on? The moon. the moon. It's based on the moon. Us going around the moon? No. <laughs> it's the moon going around us, right? So the moon going around us. How long does it take the moon to go around us? About 30 days. About 30 days. Yeah, it's 29 and a half days. So in the Hebrew calendar, how many days are in one month and how many days are in the next month? 29 and 30? 29 and 30? Usually, typically? Is that? Am I, do I have that right? All right. So they alternate in their months, a 29-day month and a 30-day month and a 29-day The reason for that is because it's 29 and a half days. If you're based on a lunar calendar, you can't do 30 every time you're going to be off. You can't do 29 every time you're going to be off. So 29, 30, 29, 30. What happens is you end up with 12 months times 29 and a half days. How long is the lunar calendar year? Somebody want to use a calculator? Oh, I thought Terry was grabbing for her. She's going to get her phone out. She's ready for that. 12 times. 354. 354. So a Hebrew calendar in general, now I'm speaking to generalities. Here's the reason why. Because in the Hebrew calendar, you can't always have every year be 354 days. The reason for that is because in a not too long amount of time, you're going to be off. Your summer's <laughs> going to be in winter. Your winter's going to be in summer. So in the Hebrew calendar, the solution for that is they add an extra year every couple of years. Extra and it's Oh, an extra month, thank you. Adar 2, right? They add the month of Adar 2 after Adar 1. They have a certain schedule that they add an extra month to make it all to make it all basically round up to a 365 day. Okay, i got to take a breath. I'm moving too fast. All right, so on a lunar calendar then, you've got a 354-day year. But we looked at it if, it, if we had the dates that we were looking at there, it ended up being 10 actual extra days, right? So... Do you remember what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. All right. <laughs> Between the time when it started and the time when it ended, it was it was a year plus 10 days. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah. So if you add 10 extra days, you end up getting 364 days. Why do I bring that up? Because maybe, we don't know for sure, if they were, if they were using a 365-day calendar, then it's a year and 10 days. If they're using a lunar calendar, it's basically a solar year. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm looking around. I'm seeing people going, process, process, process. <laughs> and I'm trying to do it, too. All right. So how, how long was it? It was at least a year. And maybe a year and 10 days. That was a long way to say that. All right. So we got that done. Moving on. By the way, some people would suggest that the flood changed everything. Not just the landscape. Okay. It clearly did that. 
the flood clearly changed the topography of the earth. In addition, some people would even suggest that perhaps it might have changed the angle of the axis that the earth sits on. And that maybe prior to that, your solar year was 360 days or 354 days, and now it's 365 days. I'm only putting it out there as you know something I ran across. It's just in the category of speculation. All right, there's nothing I can give you that would suggest that would be the case. So suffice it to say, or let me just say, we know for sure it changed the topography of the of the Earth. Whether or not it actually might have changed more than that, it's left to speculation. Okay. Moving on then. Could I ask you a question? Please. Something else that it may have changed? Because sure. Noah was 600 years old. That's true. Plus. 601 now. Plus. <laughs> Plus, yes. And so then after that, the number of years kind of dramatically yes, it falls does. off? It really does. So we know for sure it changes the topography. Esther is intimating or hinting at something that we're going to see as we move through the book of Genesis, and that is that the lifespans start to go down. Remember the longest living person? Remember who that was? Who was that? I heard it. Methuselah. How, anybody remember how long he lived? If I had a candy bar, I'd give you right now. Close. All right. Yep. It's 960. Keep going. No, lower. 969. 969 years. Longest living person that we have on record in the biblical pound. Methuselah, 969 years. Noah ends up living just shy of that. He's at 950 by the time he ends up passing away. But what happens is soon after the flood, the people that are born, they end up dying faster. They end up dying shorter lifespans. And so there's speculation as to why that might be the case. One of it is perhaps before the flood, because if you remember, the waters came from where? Below and above, right? The waters came from the fountains of the deep, burst open and the water came. And then the waters from above, the, the windows of heaven were open. And that there's the suggestion that there used to be a canopy of water over the earth that isn't there anymore as a result of the flood, and that the lifespans were affected by the lack of a canopy now. Yeah, we'll definitely end up seeing as we move through the book of Genesis that the lifespans get shorter and shorter and shorter. So that's definitely a big change, too. There are some people, too, that suggest that the flood situation being what it was ended up changing the temperatures on the planet to such an extreme that we ended up seeing the ushering in of an ice age that lasted a couple hundred years as opposed to what evolutionists would suggest would be thousands or millions of years, that the ice age ends up coming along at this time. You also find later on there's a guy named Peleg. He's going to be in the history as we're going to see people being born. And it ends up the earth was divided at that time. And there's speculation as to what that means. And some would say, oh, it's, they're divided because they don't get along anymore. And others would say, no, that's when, the, that's when the continents started to drift apart. And so how would the animals get way over here from way over there? Well, maybe the continents were together. The animals have easy access and the continents start to drift apart at that time. That the earth was divided at that time. Something we'll look at as we get there further along. Well, you can see where South America could have fit into Africa. Yeah, I mean, if you look up it right there, it's yeah. just really yeah. pretty neat how it looks like it would all fit yeah. together pretty well. Yeah. All right. Obviously, though, one of the problems with looking at that map, though, is when you look at it, you've got bright, vivid colors that show us the different countries. And then you've got blue for the water. If you took out the water, though, there's still land there, right? There's still land under yeah. the water. So we're looking at kind of an artificial line that's all the same level. It's water level, right? Yeah. Because everything that's water level and below is going to show up blue on that map, and everything that's water level and above is going to have a different color. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, if you took away the blue, there's still land there. Is It's not that this is the same depth as this, as this is. If you look here, that's actually the center of the Atlantic Ocean that's got this deep trench here. Okay? All right, that wasn't part of today's study, but I'm just I'm getting excited. You guys are getting me excited. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs>
kind of leads into what we're talking about next, though. Where did the water go? Where did the water go? Because if you got Noah's flood, here's one of the skeptics. What are the, one of the, the skeptics are going to say, I don't believe the story of Noah and his ark because you have all this water, and then where did it go? Back in the evaporation. All right. So Mike says back in the springs, and that's a good point because what's a spring? It's water underground, right? Water from underground percolating up. We're familiar with that idea. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my uncle, he lives in a house that's still uh, on well water. He's got a well. So when we go up there, it tastes the same. I didn't even know he was on well water, you know, until like a couple of years ago, where he digs into the ground and he taps into water. That's weird. Water in the ground? Water underground? Yeah, water underground. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That kind of fits with what it said when the flood burst or when the flood began, right? Mm-hmm. The fountains of the great, uh, of the deep burst open, mm-hmm. and the waters came gushing out. We we are familiar with the idea of water underground. Have you seen the show The Disappearing Lake in Florida or something? No. There's a lake, real quick. I'll try to make it real quick. Anyway, it's called, the lake is called Disappearing Lake or something. Okay. Indian name. All right. And uh, I don't know, about 20 years ago or something, the lake disappeared. Like the water was just lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until it was like a pond. And then they saw where it was actually going, getting sucked down into a thing. And all the fish were there. People were collecting the fish. I mean, it shows a video of it. And That's it was actually cool. called the Disappearing Lake, so it had happened over time, different times. So there's and, it, and it's back now replenished okay. um, because there was a drought, and then that sucked the water in, and then there was more rain, and it, and it refurbished. I mean, and it sealed itself when there was water. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting mm-hmm. video, though. That is good. Yeah. I mean, you see it getting sucked in. All the water's getting drained in, and there's people out there getting the fish. Wow. Yeah. So again, this idea of water underground, it's not a concept that we're unfamiliar with, but sometimes we seem to forget it when we're breezing through this story, just one verse after another. Until we stop to think, where did the water go? We have to start to think, oh wait, there's water underground. There's places where water can be stored underground. We draw our water, our drinking water, most of our water, you know, some of it comes from rivers, some of it comes from snowmelt, but a lot of that water percolates down into the ground, and we draw it back out, and that's where we get our water. We go out camping. There's a place we went out camping one time. It's called Afton Canyon. If you drive here to Vegas, halfway from here to Vegas is Barstow. Another half between there and Vegas is Baker. Almost to Baker, about a half an hour before you get to Baker, there's a little turn that takes you onto the dirt road and takes you out to this place. You can camp out there, Afton Canyon. And when you camp there in Afton Canyon, one of the neat things about going there is it's one of the few places where the Mojave River flows above ground. For almost the whole distance of its river, it's underground, unless you've got lots and lots of water. So as you're leaving um, Barstow, and you leave, uh, if you know where Barstow Station is, where that McDonald's is with the Panda mm-hmm. Express and the donut shops and all those mm-hmm. other things, and you go down and you cross a riverbed, it's a dry riverbed, that's the Mojave River. You see the little sign on the little thing that says Mojave River. It's dry. And then if you go all the way out to Afton Canyon, you're still, that's still the Mojave River, but at that place it actually flows above ground. Not very deep, about ankle deep. So many mosquitoes. Ugh, I don't recommend you camp there. But it's an underground river. It flows underground unless you've got too much water, and then it starts to show up above ground. Kind of cool. So water underground is a concept that that's not unfamiliar to us. Where did the water go? To answer that question, I think we ought to go back to where did the water come from? Okay? We know that the water came from above, mm-hmm. and we know the water came from below. Right. All right? Let's go even further back and look at, before that, go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Steve Dalby loves to say, if you can believe this verse, you can believe anything in the Bible. I mean, this is really foundational. Genesis 1.1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So 
Are you picturing in your mind when he creates the heavens, got a bunch of stars in it, and you're in your mind, you're thinking of the earth, and it's got it's got North America, South America, and you've got over here Africa, Asia, Europe. Is that what you're picturing? Because if you are, that's not quite where we're at yet. All right. Right now, we've just got the heavens of the earth. Look at the very next verse. What does it say? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So it's without form and void. It's 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 not yet finalized. Right. It's still in process. It's still being made. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So would you agree with me that what we've got so far, we've got the heavens and the earth, and the earth consisting of waters, all right? And this word for earth is the same word that's used for earth later on for dry land in verses 9 and 10. So read verses 9 and 10. It says this, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. That's the same word. That word right there, earth, is the same word we have in verse 1. And the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. That's day three. So day one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So picture the earth, not with not that image that you've got that's so famous, that picture from space that has North America, South America. It's got the continents on it, right? It's got some oceans on it. Picture a ball of water. But underneath the water is ground, is dirt, is earth. Okay? Mm. So close to the surface of the water, but from the view taken, if you take a snapshot in verse 1, and in verse 2, you're probably just going to see waters. Because the dry ground, the, the land doesn't show up until day 3. Alright? So in day 3, and it doesn't say, by the way, on day 3, it doesn't say, then God said, let there be dry ground. What does it say? Ground be gathered in one place. And let it appear. And let it appear. appear. So it was already there, under the water, presumably somewhat close to the surface. And God says, let it appear. Can God make ground come up? Mm -hmm. Sure. It's called volcanoes. The ground volcanoes come up and rise from these seas. Right. If God never had ground come up, Dave would be very disappointed because he loves to go to Hawaii. What is Hawaii? It's a hot spot out in the ocean as the plates are moving across this hot spot where the magma is close to the crust and it's blurping up what we call islands that are the Hawaiian islands. Mm-hmm. All right? So can God move earth up? Absolutely. Yeah, can God move earth down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has no problem with that. He can do whatever he wants. So on day one, picture earth, the ground, underwater. Wait, did you hear what I just said? We've got the earth flooded with water on day one, Right? The ground is close by underneath, but it's covered with water. Just like we have in the Noah situation. Just like the flood. The picture's the same. The picture is water. Everywhere you look, it's a ball of water. But underneath the surface of the water is ground. That God can move up or down as he, as he pleases. All right? So then, day three, he causes the ground to come up. He causes it to appear. All right? And then that's when you've got dry ground, and that's when you've got the water. What would happen if you move the ground underneath your ball of water, if you move the ground a little bit, just a little bit above the surface? What happens the water runs off, right? Mm-hmm. And it finds its collection in the lower parts. So you've got stuff that's raised, and then you find the water finding its way to the lower places. Mm-hmm. Could God do the same process to end the flood? Yeah. He could. He could raise up. It comes up, the water drains off. Could he lower some down? Could he stick his finger in the Atlantic Ocean and go, and make the Mariana Trance? Absolutely. He could make it go down. The water goes, and you know, fills in the lower places, and the earth is coming up in the higher places, and pretty soon, what have you got? You've got what we're familiar with. 
you've got ground above and dry ground, and you've got water filling in the lower areas. How much would God have to move to get this to happen? All right, let's talk about the depth of the water first. Number one, we know that the water covered all the mountains. What we don't know is how high the mountains were. Let's talk about mountains. If you look out the window and you look at the snow-covered mountains that are closest to us, okay, there's no snow up there right now, but, you know, once in a while, you look, you look right out our window, and you see uh, the Santa Ana Mountains right out here, right? You see the Santa Ana Mountains made up of five different peaks. You've got the uh, Bald Peak. You've got Bedford Peak. You've got Pleasance Peak. You've got Majesca Peak. And then you've got Santiago Peak. Are we all in agreement those are mountains? Sure. Yeah? Anybody mm -hmm. dispute that those are mountains? Those are mountains right up there. You look out there. The highest peak that we've got over here, Saddleback, and the two mountains, Santiago and, and Majesca, those two peaks, uh, the highest elevation is Santiago Peak, 5,689 feet. That's it. That's, that's it. 5,689. Let, let's use some reference. Mount Everest. 29,000 feet. Five times as much. Is Mount Everest a mountain? Yeah. Is the Santa Ana Mountains a mountain? Yeah. You've got from 5,000 to 29,000 feet, but mountain and mountain. They're still mountains. Mm -hmm. So when God's Word says mountains, when the water covered the mountains, we don't know if they were 29,000 feet or 5,000 feet. The water covered the mountains. Mm -hmm. Let's use the Mount Everest one anyway. All right, just for an abundance of caution. 29,000 feet. So God would have to make the sea level rise. 29,000 feet to be able to have that happen. Okay? The radius of the earth. All right, now we're going to start talking bigger numbers. <laughs> the radius of the earth is 3,959 miles. What that means, radius, if you remember from your math class, that's from the center. Okay? So from the radius of the earth out to the edge, all right, is 3,959 miles. How tall is Mount Everest? Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. It's five and a half miles. What does that amount to? <laughs> All right? It's not hard to move your water that much to cover that. All right? In fact, if you work it out mathematically, how much would you have to have it uh, increased by? It would basically be one-fifth of one percent. One-fifth of one percent that God would just have to push out a little bit, you know, cause the crust of the earth to push out a little bit yeah. to be able to cover Mount Everest. No problem. All right, so basically, could God cover the earth without much trouble? Yes. Could he make it all go back again? Mm -hmm. He could make it all go back again. Oh. This is a verse that we looked at a couple days ago, or actually last week. Turn to Psalm 104.8. 104.8. Here, I'll use mine as an example. Mine is the New King James Version. Here's what it has in one version. It says, They went up over the mountains, they went down into the valleys, to the place which you founded for them. The alternate readings is, the mountains rose, the valleys sank to the place which you founded for them. If you were to use that alternate reading, it would kind of convey the same idea that God can do whatever he wants. He can raise up a mountain. He can make a valley go down. And if you make a valley go down and you raise up a mountain, what's going to happen? The water's going to find the place that's lower, and it's going to fill it in. And what would you have? You would have the oceans. You would have the oceans, and you would have the, the lands and the continents. Yeah. All right, we're going to end there. <laughs> we're just, there's more, though, I didn't get to. Oh, all right, week. next week. All right, we'll do it next week. Oh, I love being at God's Word. And you guys, uh, I thank you again, you guys. Uh, like I said, you guys are the ones that are keeping me diving in. And as I'm going, I'm going, all right, let's pray. Good stuff. Good stuff. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to meet together on a Tuesday in this room, Lord. We thank you, God, for your word and the, the fingerprints that are all over creation and in your word, showing that you are the designer creator. 
We thank you, God, that not only do you have a claim on us, a claim on our lives, but you've also provided for us the opportunity for close fellowship with you, and not just temporarily in this life, but, Lord, even more so in in the time to come when we pass from this life into the next, Lord, when we get to live with you forever. We're looking forward to that day. Help us, Lord, to make the most of what we have here in this brief life on earth. And uh, we thank you, God, for enriching and blessing us with your word and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, you guys have a great week. Thank you.